The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are my own or those of my guests, and in no way represent the views of the company or companies that I or we work for. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they are told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Ident. You're listening to Squawk Ident. An aviation podcast dedicated to the journey and the challenges surrounding the life and career of Aviator Tony and his guests. Together, we will explore the many pathways to an aviation profession, the realities of what a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, an airline pilot currently flying for a legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode 25 of Squawk Ident, recorded on the 16th of February, 2020, from the 27th floor of the Prince Waikiki Hotel on the island of Oahu. On this episode of Squawk Ident, we will explore a four-day sequence that ended with a delayed red-eye and the reactions we received from some of the nervous passengers. We are also joined by one of the youngest Airbus captains at Legacy Airlines, where we discuss his journey in aviation, the outing that we shared as we paid our respects to the USS Arizona at Pearl Harbor, and how pilot mentor programs benefit those who are new to the industry. All this and more on this episode of Squawk Ident. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Right after a brief word from our sponsors. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. Well, I have some exciting news. This week, I had the privilege of flying with one of the youngest Airbus captains that Legacy Airlines currently has out on the flight line. He was a class act and quite the gentleman. But before we get to that, I would like to just discuss a little bit about the trip. That we were on together. It was a four day for me, but only a two day for him. And I will explain a little bit more about that right now. So this week's sequence was actually very nice. Um, it was an earlier departure starting the trip out uh, than I like. Uh, and I've mentioned this before, LA traffic uh, during the weekdays, I always do my best to avoid early morning departures. It just makes life a little bit easier to not have to deal with LA traffic in the morning. Uh, however, uh, this trip started with a five o'clock in the morning sign-in, which meant I was on the road a little bit after 3.30 in the morning. Being that early, it really wasn't that bad in terms of traffic. So I can't complain too much other than the very early start. 
it only took me about an hour and 10 minutes to drive into the airport parking lot. And from there, it was uh, very painless to get to the terminal and get started on my trip. I started the trip out with uh, a different captain than I mentioned earlier. Uh, he actually was also just a class act. He had a background that was extremely interesting. And I hope that here in the near future, uh, I'm able to sit down with him and discuss his journey. And so stay tuned, maybe in a future show here in the next few weeks, we can bring more about that amazing journey. But this trip, it started out uh, relatively painless. You know, I, I met uh, my captain at the gate, uh, we took off, left Los Angeles by six in the morning, flew out to Phoenix, really fast flight, about an hour and 10 minutes of flight time. Got into Phoenix, had to do a little aircraft swap, a little shuffle on over to another terminal, and we headed on out to Cabo San Lucas. Now, Cabo is a relatively short flight as well, and we didn't even really have to get off the airplane with the exception of doing a post-flight and a pre-flight between the uh, the inbound and the outbound leg. Uh, Cabo right now is going through a little bit of uh, terminal renovations. So they were deplaning by uh, ramp or stairs uh, to the outside. It was just wonderful weather. And the rampers and gate agents and just all the personnel were just so very hospitable to us. We got to have a little talk about, uh, you know, the flights coming in, how busy the airport was, the renovations, and it was nice. Um, so after completing a thorough pre-flight, we headed on out back to Phoenix, where we spent the night. Uh, after checking into the hotel, and, and we had a little bit of time that evening to go get a bite to eat, and the captain suggested that we go check out a place that was really close to the hotel there downtown. And I've got to tell you, it was an amazing experience. I've passed this place a few times, but never really stopped to go check it out. And since he had uh, a background from England and uh, very, very knowledgeable on authentic cuisine, he suggested it, and we, we actually went and checked it out. And the eatery that I am uh, referring to is called Cornish Pasty Company. Now, Cornish has owned and operated here in the Phoenix area since 2005. It originates from Cornwall, which is southwest of England, and can be traced back as far as the 1200s. Mining was once a thriving industry in Cornwall, and at that time, pasties were baked by the wives and mothers uh, of the tin miners. Uh, pasties were made in a, with a thick crimped edge along one side so that the Myers could use the crimp as a handle to hold on to while eating. Now these things, they're a lot like a giant empanada with a more uh, flaky uh, bread crust or, or crust, uh, kind of more like a pie crust really. Um, they were delicious and well worth it. They're also known for their beer. Uh, they had a very good selection. I personally had some uh, Bell's Two-Hearted Ale, which was uh, very, very good. It went very well with the pasty that I had. And uh, I had a great conversation with my captain. Uh, called it a night later in the evening, and the next day we headed back 
to the airport to head back to Los Angeles. Now, this captain that I flew with, the first uh, captain of the sequence, was not internationally called. And the reason is because he was not based in Los Angeles. He was actually based over in Miami. And uh, as of right now, not everyone in Miami is internationally called, which is a requirement whenever you're crossing the Pacific to go into Hawaii. So once we got into Los Angeles, we said our goodbyes, uh, and I headed on over to uh, Terminal 5, where I was getting ready to go over to Hawaii. Now, while I was there, I was just about getting ready to grab a cup of coffee before I headed on over to the aircraft, and I received a text message from my my captain, my new captain for this uh, sequence, and he introduced himself and said, hey, Tony, just a heads up, uh, I have coffee and donuts for the entire crew from Dunkin' Donuts, oh, so uh, yeah. if you would like to partake, uh, don't bother buying anything. I have taken care of everything. I also did the walk around for you, so uh, whenever you get to the aircraft, uh, we'll be good to go. And I just thought, wow, that that's really cool. You know, that doesn't happen very often. So I said, thank you. I'll be right there. Um, he had asked me to grab a paperwork off the printer at the gate, which I very happily did, and headed on down to the airplane where I got to meet one of the youngest Airbus captains at Legacy Airlines. Uh, we you know, said hello. We talked a little bit about this and that, and we headed on over to Hawaii. In that short four-hour and ten-minute flight, and the reason I say it was short is because it was actually blocked at five hours and 20 minutes. But because our normal headwinds that we have to account for when flight planning were just really non-existent. I think at one point at 36,000 feet, we had a headwind of about 12 knots, which is kind of crazy, especially this time of year. So we ended up landing in Honolulu about an hour ahead of schedule. So we headed on over to the hotel and that evening uh, was, you know, a long day for me. So we called it a night and I told him, hey, tomorrow let's uh, meet up if you'd like and maybe go out, check out a few sites. Uh, he had suggested that we go and visit Pearl Harbor. He had never been to Honolulu before. And though I've been there many times, I never really took that chance to to get out there. So that's what we did. And let me tell you, it was an amazing experience. It's very, a very somber place. Uh, the museums there were excellent, and we got to go out and visit the USS Arizona. So after we got back, he uh, was very interested in the podcast and Squawk Ident and agreed to sit down with me. Uh, this is some of the audio that we were recording for the interview with one of the youngest captains at Legacy Airlines. And ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. Well, today, here on Squawk Ident, I have a very special guest. I was in the middle of a trip this week, and uh, the original captain 
that was scheduled to fly this sequence was removed about two days prior uh, and they reassigned a reserve captain who was on TDY in Los Angeles. For those of you who don't understand what TDY is, just a real brief explanation. TDY is a temporary duty assignment that um, sometimes what happens is the company realizes that uh, they may not have enough uh, pilots, whether that be captains or first officers, uh, in reserves at a particular base for a particular month. So what they'll do is they'll either have what's called voluntary or involuntary TDY. And we're going to discuss that a little bit later on in the segment. Uh, but what happened was I was assigned a captain to fly with me on this trip. Um, actually, two different captains. Uh, the first captain uh, did day one and two with me, which was a Phoenix, uh, LA to Phoenix, and then from Phoenix to uh, Cabo San Lucas, uh, which was a relatively quick turn, and then back to Phoenix for an overnight. On day two, we flew from Phoenix back to Los Angeles, where then I met with my uh, second captain of the trip, and we hit it off uh, right away. Uh, turns out we got to talking, as I've mentioned many times in the show. Uh, the first thing we do when we get in the cockpit is we introduce ourselves and, and find out, you know, if they're a commuter or, you know, did they drive in, did they fly in? And, and I was surprised to hear that this particular captain was called out to do this trip because he was on involuntary TDY. So that sparked quite a bit of a conversation uh, at the beginning of the trip. And by the end of that leg, which was a Los Angeles to Honolulu leg, which was blocked at, I think, was that five hours or so, um, I got to know this individual. And he had such an interesting story that uh, it didn't even take much bribery to get him to come on to the show, and I thank him for that. But here on the show, let's get to it. He started out uh, by being interested in flying at a very young age and started out uh, with an EAA member who gave him an intro flight in uh, Cessna 172 and just absolutely fell in love with aviation. That quickly turned into an experience in a Piper Cub, which... For many of you that uh, are into aviation that listen to the show, you understand the, the traditional yellow cub, that the tail dragger that gets to fly around in all the magazines. You see these beautiful photos of this, this classic vintage aircraft. And he got his second flight was, was actually in a Piper Cub. Uh, he then uh, was able to join the Civil Air Patrol where he got some preliminary instruction, about five, six hours of instruction there. And he continued on his journey. And that's what Squawk Ident is all about. It's about the journey uh, that aviators have and how different that journey can be. He went on to uh, the National Flight Academy in Oshkosh, where he soloed in Oshkosh. And that must have been just a wonderful treat. Moved on uh, from that summer program to a move into Ohio. I got on with Bowling Green, continued his flight instruction, became a flight instructor. And at the age of 22, got the phone call. He went to interview with one of uh, the airline that we affectionately call Legacy Airlines here on Squawk Ident. Uh, he went to one of their wholly owned regional partners. And at the age of 22, started flying the Dash 8. And that quickly moved forward to 
an opportunity to go in 2013 at the age of 28 to one of the pre-merger legacy airline carriers. From there, the E-190 experience ended up on a 7576 type. Did that for a while, but as some of you may have figured out, a merger happened here at Legacy Airlines, and he was displaced. And he's going to talk a little bit about that as well today. He went to the Embraer 190 as a captain soon thereafter, and just recently upgraded to the Airbus A320 family here at Legacy Airlines. Currently based in DCA, TDY here in Los Angeles, which has allowed us the great opportunity to meet and greet Captain Jason Dorsey. Captain, welcome to the show. That's good to be here. I appreciate that. Absolutely. So happy that, uh, that we get to spend your first uh, opportunity in Honolulu together. Yeah. What can you tell me about that? What an amazing trip. Amazing trip. It's, uh, it's good to be uh, paid to do these things, you know, and you know, coasting in uh, for being airborne for about five hours. It's good to be uh, in paradise. Yeah. And, you know, we got in, was it about, what time was it yesterday when we got in? Six or two o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, it was two. It was pretty early. And an hour ahead of yeah. schedule. On time departure, early arrival. Can't beat it. What, what the heck happened there? This is not normal for Legacy Airlines, let me tell you. So we were lucky. We were very fortunate. I think our uh, headwinds uh, were 11, 12 knots at altitude on the crossing. Yeah, and then halfway through, we got a nice little tailwind on 99 tailwind, so that helped us out. Yep. So here we are, uh, as mentioned before, and as my listeners uh, understand, that uh, this whole podcast was created as part of the journey of uh, understanding what aviators have gone through, what aviators are going through, and what future aviators can expect to go through. And, and we're trying to get the information out there so that it's not a surprise. I know for you know, Jason and I were talking yesterday about on the trip over how you know nobody ever told us what to expect, and we kind of learned through trial and error, and it just made it so much easier once we understood what was next because of our experiences. And that's really what we're doing here on Squawk Ident is kind of sharing those experiences to help better prepare the future aviator. And what I really wanted to talk to you today about, uh, first thing, is your journey. What can you tell me about that first time you had that experience with that uh, EAA uh, mentor that said, ah, you know, you, you like what's going on here. Let, let's jump in this airplane and check it out. What happened? Yeah, it's kind of a combination of uh, a couple mentors. Uh, the EAA uh, member that uh, brought me along and uh, gave me uh, my first taste of taking off and so forth and and then two uh people in uh you know your uh, family my mother uh that uh, took hold of my interest and encouraged me to uh then pursue that uh so yeah everybody's journey is a little bit different uh, my journey is different than my brother's journey who's also a pilot and uh you know the uh confusing path ahead uh we're going to try to mitigate that uh by giving back uh showing people and telling people uh, what uh, my journey was like, which obviously is different than most, um, but how to get from point A to point B with as little pain as possible. Yeah. So you mentioned that you had a couple mentors that really encouraged you. Um, 
to get started in aviation. How did that process work? What do you remember the day? It was uh, June 1999, and that was my first flight. And uh, another mentor would have been uh, the uh, flight instructor that uh, soloed me, Mike Moyer, which was a Civil Air Patrol member. Uh, Comair, as most uh, remember, there was an airline called Comair. And uh, he volunteered his week, uh, made a huge impact on me uh, that somebody would give a week out of their vacation come out to uh, Wisconsin and teach a uh, 16-year-old kid, uh, 16 or 17, uh, how to fly uh, for free. Um, amazing, the uh, the program, the Civil Air Patrol, and all the opportunities uh, that that program presented me and gave me, not only in aviation, but in leadership and a multitude of other skills and life lessons that uh, we uh, get to learn uh, from programs such as uh, Civil Air Patrol. Yeah, so I, you know, to tell you the truth, uh, I know about Civil Air Patrol, but I was never really a part of it. I didn't have that experience. And I'm, I'm very curious, if I am, you know, a freshman in high school, let's just say, and I'm interested in aviation, and, you know, I feel like maybe this is something that I can pursue as a career, and I get my feet wet by doing some homework and head, hanging out at the airport and getting my parents to take me and see if I can find a a flight school that might have a program that might fit my needs. How would one go from that experience to then getting in contact with a Civil Air Patrol experience or program that will allow them to get their feet wet in aviation? Yeah, that's a that's a great uh, great question because not every Civil Air Patrol unit is the same. Uh, not every uh, state is the same. Uh, the resources allocated to uh, certain uh, what they call squadrons is different than uh, the city maybe 100 miles away from you. So uh, in order to do your research, uh, it uh, requires that uh, if Civil Air Patrol is something that is of interest to you, um, definitely make contact and uh, see if the local squadron has an airplane, if uh, they have instructor pilots, and how active they are in the key, uh, what they call the cadet program. Uh, and uh, see how many uh, other cadets are located in that program. Uh, if it's a uh, thriving program, you're going to have more of an opportunity to uh, do well. And in my case in Morgantown, West Virginia, that was the case. Uh, we had an airplane. We had a lot of active pilots and a lot of active cadets, and uh, the opportunities uh, were great. Not so much in uh, Columbus, Ohio, where I subsequently moved, uh, starting my junior year at high school, uh, where uh, aviation wasn't, uh, the, the flying aspect of it was uh, second to the search and rescue aspect of uh, Civil Air Patrol. Uh, so they have a plethora of various uh, programs and services that uh, are really uh, unknown to a lot of people. But uh, in my case, I wanted to fly. And uh, although I did the other programs within Civil Civil Air Patrol, like Search and Rescue and and so forth, uh, flying was really uh, at the top of my my goals. Um, I saw my uh, brother uh, coming from a Navy family. He ended up going to the uh, United States Naval Academy in Annapolis. And uh, I just found that, uh, you know, with the Civil Air Patrol and the military background, um, I was weighing my options. You know, everybody has a different journey. And... With uh, Civil Air Patrol obviously being part of the United States Air Force, I thought, uh, well, I, I don't want to go to the academy 
and I want to kind of have more of a structured uh, uh, college experience. Uh, so ROTC will work for me. Um, and little did I know that uh, even within the ROTC units, uh, do your research, because I ended up at uh, Bowling Green State University in uh, Bowling Green, Ohio. And in Bowling Green, Ohio, the Air Force ROTC uh, uh, was more geared towards other fields other than aviation. Uh, I remember at the time, I believe my uh, commander was acquisitions and uh, logistics. And um, I look back after a year in college, and not single one person had a uh, pilot slot. Um, the three years looking back, one person had uh, been allocated a nav slot. And so I looked at my uh, progress and my aspirations, and uh, I decided that maybe the Air Force wasn't for me. Of course, my family being Navy, uh, they were kind of dismayed at uh, going into the Air Force ROTC program, but uh, had I known uh, of other programs, uh, other universities uh, who geared their students more towards the aviation, like Ohio State maybe, uh, and also not only the Air Force ROTC program, but Navy ROTC, um, maybe things could have been a little bit different. So a lot of people don't understand that there's um, a lot of different programs, if the military is a way to go for you, that's the way you want to go, that the academies are obviously amazing and prestigious, but there's also a plethora of other uh, avenues to go through, uh, whether it be Navy ROTC or Air Force ROTC uh, and so forth. And then even in the Marine Corps, you have the PLC program. And all this um, I was never aware of. Nobody ever told me about these programs. So I kind of had to uh, make the mistake and maybe end up at the wrong university uh, Air Force ROTC program in order to uh, uh, understand. And maybe that wasn't the best decision. Um, but nonetheless, I uh, moved on and, uh, got my ratings at Bowling Green State University and at uh, 20 years old became one of the, uh, you know, youngest, uh, instructors there. So, um, I went a year around and, uh, uh, three and a half years of college and, uh, my, uh, subsequent, uh, passing of my best friend and uh, college roommate, Scott Holland, uh, decided that uh, I needed to go ahead and get out. So having my ratings and uh, so forth, I was able to uh, uh, instruct and uh, build my hours and found a job in uh, Greenville, North Carolina at a uh, 141 flight school and uh, had a great time. Unfortunately, that uh, was short-lived. Fortunately and unfortunately, that was short-lived. Mm-hmm. As we all know, with uh, some of the Characters in aviation aren't the uh, necessarily nicest to work for. Some of the hurdles that we all have to get through. Yes, yeah, absolutely. A, yeah, a little bit painful, but uh, it's okay. Um, you know, in in Greenville, when you're not exposed to uh, uh, the airline, the big airports, when you see the only airliner fly in, which is this beautiful Dash Eight and the nice little hum of the engines and the propellers, and you say, oh, "Man, look at that! Uh, maybe that's something I need to look at." So, really, it was your your exposure at your location where you're getting most of your training, that was, that was your world. That was your perception of this is the future, this is the next step. And so you took the next step that was, that was available to you, which exactly. was, hey, I'm going to go 
work for them, those guys. You know, you see the guys flying the bigger airplane coming in, whether that's a cargo operator or 135 or a, or a 121 or be it regional or major or, or legacy carrier, doesn't matter. What you're exposed to in your training seems to kind of, and I, and I see this as a common um, path that most people decide to take. It's, oh, I see that airplane right there. Those guys, man, one of these days I'm going to walk over that red line and go talk to them and maybe hand them my resume. And, and so it sounds to me like that, that's exactly what you're saying is your kind of progression, you know, starting out with the Civil Air Patrol, uh, which we'll put information about that in the show notes. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about it, uh, just go to gocivilairpatrol.com. From there, uh, you can find out a lot about how it is an Air Force Auxiliary, at least um, a U.S. Air Force Auxiliary program. And they do a lot of the things that you were talking about, Jason, about the search and rescue and, and opportunities to learn and train cadet programs. Uh, but your your progression took you through that ROTC, and then there you were, uh, college graduate, right? And yep. And then you're flight instructing, and you're doing this 141 school, and you saw this big, beautiful Dash 8 come in. And how did that progression happen? How did you end up there? Well, unfortunately, uh, again, fortunately, and unfortunately, I was working for a boss that was less desirable to work for. And so by the uh, sheer nature of, well, I'm either going to get violated, I'm going to end up dying, or I'm going to... Uh, uh, do something that I shouldn't be doing. So um, I decided uh, that uh, morally I uh, cannot stay here and uh, that I need to move on. And luckily, um, my uh, immediate boss uh, was a uh, Czech airman for one of uh, Legacy's wholly owned airlines that flew Dash 8s. And so uh, I approached him, and uh, I uh, simply asked... uh, you know, what do you need to do to get to the next step? And uh, I think that's uh, my first ex- big experience with somebody reaching their hand down and pulling me up, pulling me along and showing me and mentoring me into uh, the next step. Um, I think uh, we get blinded and those that are looking at the next step, uh, I was blinded, I know, uh, coming from instructing, What are what is the next step? What are the options out there? Um, and I think geographically, when you're located in a certain area, you're kind of blinded by what are the other opportunities because we look for uh, you know, things that are easiest for us. Uh, what, where's the closest bases and the closest airports? Um, so we're not moving to New York City uh, or Chicago. And uh, for me, uh, the legacy wholly owned airline that I ended up choosing uh, had a, uh, the training facility in Charlotte, North Carolina. And subsequently, uh, I went to go work for them. So I uh, found myself uh, training and being moved around a couple bases and finally found my home uh, near Greenville, North Carolina at one of their bases in New Bern, North Carolina. And so your experience prior to that was flight instructing in what type of aircraft? Was it primarily Cessna? Uh, everything, depending on the uh, the customer. But the uh, flight school in Greenville was a Diamond. Uh, oh, the DA-20. The DA-20s, the DA-40s. 40s, uh-huh. 
uh, a lot of time in various aircraft. Uh, and I think that's one of the most amazing things about instructing. I really thoroughly loved instructing. Uh, you could be in a debonair one day, uh, 172 the next. Uh, and uh, the uh, diversity of aircraft that you get to fly, it's just it's really amazing, uh, really awesome times. And you get to fly some things that uh, maybe some other people might not have uh, uh, been able to fly before, you know, beach 18 to a, uh, a Viking to, uh, uh, whatnot. So, uh, definitely it's not just the cookie cutter 172, 152 operation. Um, uh, and that's, uh, definitely, uh, bore. It gets boring at some time when you're flying the same. Yeah. I always say it's like a, a pilot factory or the bubble. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I nothing. actually attended a pilot factory myself. Um, and you know, I've mentioned it before in the show, Deer Valley in Phoenix, there was a school that was, uh, formerly known as Pan Am Flight Academy. Uh, it was a great school, uh, wasn't the cheapest, uh, wasn't one that I would probably do again. I would have probably done a different thing, but now I know more, you know, I, I understand there are plenty of schools out there with different options. Like you mentioned, I was kind of stuck in what I knew and, and I didn't know what I didn't know. Um, and that progression I always found interesting because, you know, I went through some interviews prior to landing at the regional I ended up landing at. And, uh, you know, I learned some things and I got turned down a few times and, and eventually I got hired on at a regional and that transition to go from general aviation, piston powered aircraft to, all right, now I'm on a turbo prop airplane or a turbo fan aircraft. How do you remember what your biggest challenge was to go from, you know, being kind of like the big fish in the little pond with the flight instructing um, environment to now being the little fish in the much bigger pond in ground school at, a, at an airline, at an actual airline? Was that a, an easy transition for you or did, did you have like anything that stood out as that was your biggest challenge? Well, coming from a university that wasn't uh, necessarily airline driven, more um there was really not a path forward. Um I was not aware of the difficulties of ground school. Um perseverance, studying my tail off. Um you know, I'm not the sharpest crayon in the box, I always tell people, but I'm not the dullest either. And uh I think uh, yeah, getting ready for ground school um, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know about triggers and flows. I didn't know about actions and call outs. And luckily, my uh, training partner, uh, who is now here as well, um, was very well in tune coming from Purdue. So uh, when you're looking at uh, the universities, there's obviously airline uh, oriented universities that really help prepare their students well. Um, for that next step, my university at that time uh, was not, and I think that that's what's really important about why we're here. And uh, while I, uh, you know, why I give back to my university now is to really try to help the people coming through now to get their act together, do their research, uh, be knowledgeable about your industry, and prepare yourself for that next step. So getting back to your question about what was the most challenging thing is really um, is kind of silly, but I was so naive. Um, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, and I look back now, um, 
those that uh, were, have been in the industry in the last probably 15, 20 years know that the regional airline industry and the training programs uh, are just death by fire hose and you either sink or swim. And I think that's probably the hardest thing is just being able to take in all the change and everything that's coming at you. And really, you got to grow up pretty fast. Yeah. Yeah. And I noticed that too. Uh, I think uh, we were comparing some notes and you started out at that uh, wholly owned regional in 07, was it? Uh, June 2007. And I started out at a wholly owned in December of 06, a different wholly owned. Um, and I had a kind of a similar background and we kind of both were talking about, you know, remember how difficult it was and how many people washed out. Um, things have changed a little, I think for the better now with these AQP programs that are being forced upon all 121 carriers so that there is a consistency within the, the training department for these carriers. Um, I think that is changed you know i think the mentality at least at my carrier i remember my first day you know we had to go around the room and introduce ourselves and here we are in a a collared shirt you know dress slacks wearing your best got your fresh haircut clean shaven like you've never clean shaven before because it's your first day on this airline job and you want to represent yourself as good as possible and you know you stand up you you tell them your name and, and what you were doing before this most most People, especially at that level in a 121 carrier regional, they they pretty much are the same. They either come from a military background or they come from uh, flight instructing or maybe cargo or something like that. And everybody goes around the room. And when we were done, the instructor said to us, okay, now everyone look to your left and look to your right. Study. Every night, study. Don't, Don't just sit there and go to the bar and have a beer and think, oh, well, Today was easy, you know, tomorrow's going to be fine. No, you need to study because odds are the guy to your left or the gal to your right aren't going to be here or they will and you won't. That is so, absolutely, it's synonymous with, I think, all, a lot of the regional airlines. I know that, that that exact same speech was given to me and it kind of floors you. You're excited to be here and next thing you know, you're being told the door's right there. You're probably not going to make it. And uh, a lot of people didn't make it. Right. And you get that, that Hitchcockian kind of zoom effect, you know, from the old movies. Uh, and you're just like, what? you know, and here you are so excited to be there. And it kind of deflates you a little bit, but it also scares you into studying. And I think that's the biggest fear for people coming up now uh, that, you know, they're, they're throwing a lot more money down than we did. And we really weren't first generation like some of the old timers that are flying around getting ready to retire now they're like oh yeah it cost me i was paying you know 15 bucks for a flight and going up paying an instructor five bucks and you know got my ratings and you know while i was working it's like what you know and i don't don't even want to know what a 172 sp wet goes for nowadays because oh uh, you're like at 140 170 dollars that's an hour. conservative yeah. you know, it depends where you are i guess but yeah it's uh it's crazy how expensive this education is however on the flip side in 2020 the with the regionals really pushing their human resources department and their pilot recruitment they're coming on and they're getting signing bonuses now a lot of people are so uh, competitive and trying to get that candidate that qualified applicant in they're giving these signing bonuses or i mean i know a few of them are 
are giving out 20 grand signing bonus if you go through more than I ever made in my first year. Right. You know, and, uh, is it, yeah, the floors yet. I think the, uh, the culture is changing. Um, you know, as much as most of the airlines want to deny the poly shortage is here and, uh, the scary stories of, Hey, if you fail a check, ride, Don't worry. McDonald's is hiring. Uh, those, those days are past us. Um, as far as the culture is concerned, um, like you said, there's a lot more money, a lot more investment. Uh, the candidates that are coming through these universities and so forth are finally being a little bit more well prepared, um, you know, CRM and, and being exposed to these things. But we still have a lot, a lot more work to do. Uh, reaching out to not only the uh, the guy or gal that goes to Ember Riddle, but also the small school and bringing them up and letting uh, uh, them know what the opportunities are ahead of them. And uh, really, any pilot uh, or potential pilot know that there's such a bright future. There's more of a future than uh, you and I could ever, you know, imagine. Uh, you know, flow through programs. What a joke! That would have never happened. That will never happen. Right. And, and now you look, here and, it is. and here it is. Yeah. So, and your journey, and what really struck me as amazing um, was within the first few minutes of flying together and starting to introduce each other to who we were and our, what our backgrounds were, you know, you sat there and you said, yeah, I'm one of the youngest captains on the Airbus at Legacy Airlines. And I was so proud of that fact. And I'm sure you've, you've probably received a lot of praise um, and, it, and possibly even had a little bit of a difficult time. I can see how... You know, for me, I always look at the positive aspect and I feel just pride when I hear something like that. And I know back on a show, I don't know if it was episode eight, um, I introduced my very first solo endorsement. He was 16 years old, flying in Phoenix. I signed him off. And, you know, years and years later, he's in the training department at Legacy Airlines. And I just felt so proud because not just because he was my student, but because he was so young, and here he is at a legacy carrier. But I also knew that he's going to fly with some of the, let's just say, the older generation pilot who's going to look at this individual pilot, who's an excellent pilot, by the way. And they're immediately going to have an opinion that he's a millennial, and he's, he's going to have to babysit him, and he's probably going to get his feelings hurt. And so there's this stigma that needs to be broken. and. With you being one of the youngest captains in an Airbus, I'm sure you've flown with FOs that are quite significantly older than Twice you. Twice my age. <laughs> Have you had any issues, any, any personality problems? Yeah, you, you always encounter those that uh, want to thumb uh, their nose at you. And I think that uh, early in my career, being one of the you know, youngest instructors, actually the well, second youngest instructor, at my university, you have those adversarial people in your life, those people that uh, don't uh, uh, look at you the same as maybe uh, peers of their own age or similar. Um, but uh, I can't say that uh, for the most part, as a captain, I had that issue. And even as a young first officer, um, nothing but great experiences. Um, you do get double takes in the uh, crew lounge. Uh, who's this, you know, uh, wholly owned captain in my crew lounge? Uh, 
And then they look at you and they're like, well, wait, maybe, you know, he's not. Uh, who are you? And it's more of an interest and it piques uh, people's uh, uh, interest to ask the story, you know, what are you doing here? And, and I think that's why we're here. Uh, you know, the elephant is, you know, in the room, uh, you know, when I uh, uh, walk in or introduce myself, uh, gate agents get confused. Uh, it, it's it's kind of interesting uh, dynamic. But um, I am aware, fully aware of, uh, of that and, uh, take time to uh, embrace it. And, uh, uh, you are defined as the person that you are and how you perform in this craft that we have, this amazing industry, um, being a pilot, uh, you're, you need to be judged by how you perform. Yeah. Actions speak way louder than Absolutely. words. Absolutely. So your, your journey, you know, I, I want to make sure that we, we cover it all. You know, we left off kind of before we start talking about um, the training at a regional and, and your experiences and, and some of the evolution of that. And your time at this wholly owned regional was relatively short and I think shorter than most. What can you tell me about that progression and how you moved forward from there? Well, um, as most, uh, if you look at history, uh, back in uh, 2007 and eight, uh, we also had a bad economic time, and uh, my particular legacy wholly owned, uh, we were losing airplanes. So little did I know when I uh, signed up and uh, got hired at this particular airline that uh, the future was not bright. The future was uh, quite dim. Uh, we were closing bases. We were in contract negotiations, uh, and uh, the company was absolutely adamant about negotiating. Um, and uh, so the the future was not bright. And uh, unfortunately, uh, we had the Colgan accident. Who, uh, you know, most uh, can look back at history, and that was a really defining moment for absolutely. a lot of people. Yeah, that was a uh, horrific. Uh, a lot of that uh, lessons were learned, and. Uh, we have a lot uh, of new regulations and training and so forth because of that accident. Um, and it just happened in a just lucky time. Um, and that, I don't mean to have that sound callous or whatnot. Uh, it was just a fact that at that time, uh, you know, SIC types, uh, first officers were only given second-in-command types. They were not given PIC types, spine-in-command types. So um, the FA force that all first officers had to be uh, PIC typed. Uh, so the next uh, checking event, which at uh, this legacy wholly-owned airline we did every year. Some airlines are different, um, but uh, this was uh, every year that uh, you had an extended checking uh, event. It's called CQT, Continued Qualification Training, uh, in which that uh, you would have an additional sim, and then they would prepare you for uh, a type ride. Uh, so uh, I completed that type ride, and I'm looking at uh, the rumors going around of our base is closing, our airline is closing down, and uh, let's just be honest, uh, the, uh, the fact that Colgan happened uh, on a Dash 8 uh, Q400, beautiful airplane, there is a, uh, the fear, the fear in the industry of propellers. Yeah, and, not, just, uh, not just the the industry, the passengers and the uh, marketing departments uh, at all the airlines started saying the public is afraid of anything with a propeller on it. Let's park them. 
because Absolutely. we're losing too much business. And and I remember uh, my regional that I was at, a uh, sister company to yours, at the time, um, we parked all our sobs we had and painted new logos on the side of all of our RJs saying regional jet. Yeah. And the Colgan crash you're referring to, um, just a quick brief for those of you who may be listening and not really understand or remember uh, the significance of that in the United States, uh, Colgan Air Flight 3407 in 2009, February 12th, 2009 to be exact, over Buffalo, New York, a uh, Dash 8 Q400. Uh, by the way, a little trivia, the Q stands for quiet, quiet 400, uh, made by Bombardier, or Bombardier, I should say. You have, uh... Yeah, the, the, the Q is quiet, which they, uh, most airlines deactivated because they were too cheap to keep it up. To keep the silent. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. So the, the, the Q400, it entered an aerodynamic stall from which it did not recover, and it crashed into a house in Clarence Center, New York. Uh, around 10 o'clock at night on a snowy evening, killing all 49 passengers and crew on board, as well as one person inside the house. The NTSB conducted an accident investigation, and they published their final report uh, in 2010, about a year later, and they found the probable cause to be that the pilots had an inappropriate response to the stall warnings. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, for those of us that have you know, had a, a vested interest in finding out exactly what happened, um, if you read the NTSB report, the pilot in command and the first officer uh, both did things that were not appropriate with what was happening. And further investigation found that there were similar instances that did not lead to a crash. However, similar inappropriate stall recovery techniques were performed out on the line, and the Colgan. Uh, crash affected a nation soon after this miracle on the Hudson event that happened that really boosted the way people looked at pilots in the U.S. So here we went from a few weeks of just getting pats on the back just for having the uniform on to, oh, you're not a regional guy, are you? And it really, it was, it was ugly. I have some personal stories that maybe in a future episode I'll share, but it was pretty bad for a while, and Congress enacted and forced the FAA to release what we now refer to as FAR 117, which it not only improved upon, depending on who you talk to, for my own personal opinion on that, but improved upon the rest regulations, and it dictated that all people at the controls of a 121 airline operation must be type rated, whether that's SIC type rating or if that's a PIC type rating. Now, obviously, the captain always had to have an ATP, but now, after this event, everyone had to have an ATP, and you would, as a first officer, get an ATP that was valid from the right seat. And that process, I've never seen so many people struggle to pass an ATP at a time when the airline was trying to weed out anyone that had similar negative characteristics from that NTSB report. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, I know uh, some pilots uh, um, that were captains 
and uh, the liability is just too great. Uh, so if you were nothing, uh, any well, I should say anything but uh, the tip of the spear, um, they had a close look at you. And if you uh, fell short or even close marginally to short to the standards, um, as a captain, you were either fired or permanently downgraded. And there were some amazing pilots that, uh, um, through the uh, you know recurrent training, got caught up into the the politics and then to the training department, um, and uh, they had their careers devastated. Um, unfortunately for them, uh, they uh, a couple of them were forced out of the airline or uh, forced downgraded. And uh, it's kind of interesting now that the flow happened. That you had the flow, some of those are here. Yeah, and uh, I know one, uh, probably one of the best captains I ever flew with. He just got caught up in uh, a bad training event, but that one, you know, two bad training events impacted his career. But luckily, I mean, things you know have worked out for him. Yeah, and so you you started out um, in '07 over there, 22 years old, flying a Dash Eight, and just six years later, in 2013. You ended up getting an, is it an offer for an interview or was it some kind of flow program? So shortly after my uh, ATP CQT uh, recurrent training program, um, I looked around and I said, what am I going to do? Uh, I have this new type rating and uh, luckily one of the uh, pre-merger legacy airlines, their window was open. Uh, this was not the most ideal place to go. The pay was not great. A lot of people did not want to go there and stay. Um, but I said, well, what do I have to lose? I'm getting paid in maybe less than $24 an hour um, and at a dying airline, or why not? Without risk, there is no reward. And what's the risk of applying and being turned down? But what's the risk of applying? And they say, hey, we would like to meet you. So at that time in 2006, there was no preferential interview. There was no flow. That's a joke. There would never be a flow program. Uh, None of that was ever in existence back then. And um, so I got a phone call on the way home from a four-day trip and uh, on my cell phone. And I looked down. I said, well, this has got to be a spam call. I'm not going to answer it. I said, but what if? Arizona, hmm, I don't know. I'll just answer it, what the heck. And it was the offer, offer for an interview. And I believe in November, I went out to interview. I went to a Charlotte, North Carolina interview, and I put my boxing gloves on. I said, you know, it's a very nice opportunity. Maybe I'll learn something from it for the next interview. But I'm going to put my boxing gloves on. I'm going to do everything I can do to study for this interview, ask as many questions as I can ask, um, and try to do the best I can. So uh, I got uh, the uh, Cathay Pacific interview gouge. Here's a book, uh, which is by far in industry, I think, the hardest interview to pass. And I read up, and I read my uh, all my manuals, knew all my triggers and flows, my call-outs, my emergency action items, and so forth. And I came, came to that uh, interview, uh, again, just ready to, 
ready to fight, fight, the, fight for this job. They're going to invite me. I'm going to do the best I can. So, um, brand new uniform, went to Staples, bought a brand new briefcase, brand new belt, shoes, uh, everything, uh, had everything ready to go lined up. And at that time, that legacy pre-merger carrier, uh, if you showed up without your, your blazer buttoned up, uh, that was probably it for you. There were uh, two people in the interview, and uh, they were very uh, nice. Uh, they wanted to see if you could relax, take your jacket off, uh, and really let your uh, guard down. And um, the interview happened. It was uh, non-eventful. It was uh, a technical interview, an HR interview, uh, and really just a meet and greet until... Tell me about the airline and, and so forth. Um, little did I know, two weeks later, they called me. And uh, that was just before Christmas. And uh, I said, well, this isn't going to be good. <laughs> and uh, Vice President of uh, Flight Operations called me and said, we'd like to offer you the job. Wow. And so that ended up being the best Christmas ever. Um, and so uh, the first class available was February 2007. I just heard uh turned 28 years old and uh, off I was. So you went from 2007. How old were you then? 27. So 27 years old and you got your first major airline job. And when you were in that very first day of, of indoctrination or in doc as we call it, and you will have to go around the room and stand up and introduce yourself and you looked around, what did you see? People twice my age. Yeah. <laughs> um, what kind of backgrounds did they have? All uh, regional airlines, Republic, uh, Air Wisconsin. Uh, a lot of guys with 17, 20 years of jet time. Um, and then the little dash driver with, uh, I think I came in with about 5,500 hours, uh, you know, dash eight time uh, or total time. And uh, definitely a different uh, demographic. So, um, but... We had a great time. Uh, a lot of those guys are still my friends to this day, and uh, it was still very welcoming. Yeah. So that, you know, you, you obviously you made it through there, uh, no problems, and you know, here you are at a a major carrier in the U.S. And you were on originally what aircraft? Uh, so I was hired on to the Embraer 190. Okay. And and then how long were you on that aircraft? Uh, the initial probation uh, for uh, new hires was uh, one year, and then after one year, you could bid off to a different aircraft. And at that time, the uh, pay rate was forty-two fifteen an hour uh, on the one ninety, and everything else was forty thousand flat. So the forty-two fifteen was a pay raise, and uh, it was the most junior airplane, and so your seniority. Uh, allowed to uh, go a little bit farther as far as being able to hold a line right away. Mm -hmm. um, I was fortunate, uh, two months of reserve, and then the rest of it was uh, holding the line and flying and getting experience because never flew a jet aircraft before. So yeah. uh, amazing to get a lot of reps uh, up and downs and flying in some of uh, the worst uh, weather in the Northeast and snow and rain and thunderstorms. Um which was fine because of the Dash 8, uh, flying below 25,000 feet through thunderstorms, round thunderstorms and so forth. So, But, uh, yeah, so one year of the 190, and then uh, 
uh, they always say, be careful what you bid for. You might just get it. So what's, uh, what's the number one on anyone's list? Uh, fly the biggest airplane. Uh, how cool would that be? Right. So biggest airplane being at that legacy airline, uh, the three thirty, uh, followed by the seven, six, seven, five. And, uh, then the Airbus seven, three was being phased out at that time, I believe. Um, and so, uh, the bid came around, the window closed and uh, the bid was published and i'm looking at uh, just being happy to be on the airbus that's uh, would be amazing awesome uh so looked at charlotte and i was not awarded charlotte airbus looked at uh philadelphia uh oh shit not philadelphia okay uh dc not there and i said holy holy crap i said i got the 76 Nice. In Charlotte. Who the hell would have known that that would even happen? Yeah. And uh, living uh, outside of Raleigh, uh, that was amazing. I can commute to work. And uh, let me tell you, it was the hardest training program, I think, to date. Um, at that legacy pre-merger airline, uh, the 7576, I think in general is probably one of the hardest uh, type ratings. Very regimented, uh, very detailed, and uh, had a great time. Yeah. Um, so I find myself completing training. I find myself in the 767-200. Look up at the uh, compass card and says p mod airlines on it nice and uh, not the not the uh regional the uh former mainline carrier that classic vintage airplanes. the merger yep. yeah mm-hmm. and uh i find myself flying with this amazing uh guy uh captain check airman uh probably the tip of the spear um learn a lot from him um and uh, yeah, so I found myself taking off from uh, Charlotte and uh, my first uh, flight uh, to Madrid. Wow. So your first flight, you're already doing international. Yep. No breaking period. That's it. No breaking period. So yeah, my first flight to uh, Madrid and uh, we get over there and uh, you learn real quick the international lifestyle, the, the culture is a little bit different than domestic and uh, have a great phenomenal time. The crew really took me in. Um, we had a, uh, amazing overnight, a lot of great food and, uh, drinks and so forth. And then you wake up the third day and you come home and on the way, uh, the way home, I, uh, turned to the, uh, the captain and I said, you know, uh, this is just, uh, too much fun, but I don't think I fully understand what I'm doing here. Sarcastically. Uh, what are you doing next week? And he said, well, I said, uh, yeah, he said, uh, I have a student that canceled. We're go- I'm going to Dublin, supposedly. I said, well, do you think when we land that you can give him a call and say, hey, this guy needs an extra trip on OE? And uh, surely enough, yeah. hey, you're going to Dublin, Jason, with me. Nice. Yeah. And so following week, I went to Dublin, and uh, uh, that was it. So um, I was able to get another OE trip uh, you know, domestically. And uh, there's a lot of change going on at that time. Uh, we were, uh, during that time, I remember starting the merger and thus the training checklist and so forth. We were going through revision cycles. I think 
the, the, the first one or the third one. Is this the first merger that that airline went through? Mm. No, this was the second merger. With Legacy. Yes. This is the main, the, one, the, the last the, merger. The big one of this decade, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we had uh, a lot of changes going on. So, uh, yeah, so from, from that, uh, I was all stoked and pumped and uh, was able to, the whole long call which is uh, at that time, I think it was 10 hours, maybe it was 12 hours, I can't remember. And uh, so not only uh, flying international, but on long call. So got a lot of great trips out of that. Uh, you know, you go from instructing uh, to a couple years later flying across the pond, and uh, whether it be uh, Portugal or uh, Dublin, uh, Deep South, uh, did a couple trips down to Rio de Janeiro, and you're flying with these amazing people. Uh, these guys, uh, they're just uh, awesome. They're so humble. Uh, the group of pilots that I got to work with, uh, from a a three-star air force general to, uh, guys that have 30 plus years, uh, more experience than I was, uh, old at that time, uh, flying. And you just really learn, um, what it is to be at that level. Um, and so, Unfortunately, for the merger, and uh, at that time, the uh, the seven six seven two hundred uh, was having maintenance issues and reliability issues, and uh, they uh, decided that uh, they wanted to modernize the fleet and get rid of them. So, at that time, the seven six two hundred was moved out to the desert, and uh, the seven five, uh, which I only got to fly a couple times. Uh, mostly to Dublin, uh, Lisbon. Um, they were sending all those aircraft to Philly. So I uh, actually got displaced, uh, forced displaced, and uh, I displaced to the Airbus 320 in the right seat. And then about a year and a half after that, uh, I got uh, uh, a phone call from a buddy of mine who's now a Czech Airman on the uh, 190. And he said, you know, you ought to come over the 190. We're hurting on captains. You can hold a line, and you can do all these Raleigh-Durham overnights. I said, sign me up. I hadn't had PIC turbine time. Captain, never a captain. So I said, why not? Shoot a couple of birds uh, with one stone, and I'll do it. So here I go back to training. So my third training event in about a year, two years. Yeah, about two years. And uh, you know, became a captain. Yeah. And... Uh, that led to uh, for about four years in the left seat of the 190 uh, during a time where uh, we then uh, became, well, the airline started having all these flows and uh, a lot of new young blood, um, a lot of uh, people that maybe came over that had, uh, you know, a little bit of negativity. Uh, you had a lot of mergers. You had a lot of cultural issues. And uh, luckily, a lot of that's moved along. But uh, yeah, from there, basically, uh, again, you got to be careful what you bid for. You might just get it. Uh, on my wish list, who doesn't want to be uh, a captain on a bigger airplane? Uh, little did I know uh, that uh, my name would have come up. And uh got to my seniority, and I got awarded it. So that was uh, 2018, December 2nd, 2018. I was awarded uh, a Group 2 captain. At uh, 33 years old, 33 years old, old, captain, group two captain on the Airbus. 
Yeah. Not a, even the 7.3. At a legacy carrier, like the one of the, if not the, but one of the biggest uh, in, in the U.S. country. Um, and here you are. Uh, you recently uh, got a bid uh, for DCA flying. So now your new base is DCA. And unfortunately, you got the bid, you got the base, you're golden, you're, you're right there close to home, quality of life should be better than having to commute and deal with crash pads and whatnot, and you get an involuntary TDY. Now, we mentioned it in the onset of the interview, a little bit about what a TDY is, a temporary duty displacement, uh, but how did that work for you? Um, like, did they just go, hey, you know, you got the base, but you're TDY'd in... I, I haven't even seen DC yet uh, as a base. So I was uh, initially based in New York. Uh, what a great experience. Uh, a little bit nervous. Um, come in, you know, a little bit of a country boy going to the big city. Forget about um, it. Yeah, forget about <laughs> it. Man, what amazing, amazing group of pilots up there. Yes. Uh, the chief pilots, um, the whole um, network up there, really amazing. And uh, I was really fortunate. Um, and uh, then, so after going through training and getting released to the line, uh, you know, I had a uh, vacation in January, so I really didn't see much in New York. Uh, and then I was uh, based in February in DCA. And during the bid package, it comes out, um, hey, we're fat on captains, but LA is short, and we're going to be shifting you now to LA. So obviously the wife wasn't too happy, and that's okay. Um, it's temporary. Right. <laughs> it's not a permanent temporary. Duty <laughs> temporary. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, uh, I was sent out to L.A. Uh, and uh, part about being in L.A. is an international only base. So coming from being domestic 320 to international 320, I had to have my line check. So um, I had to go out with the uh, Czech Airmen uh, to uh, an international outstation, which my first one was Maui. Last week. Right. And Maui's, uh, and just for those of you who might be thinking, well, that's part of the U.S., how is that international? You're doing overwater navigation, overwater uh, reporting, GPS coordinates, possibly doing circle and tick plotting. There's a lot of education there that is additional to what a domestic pilot needs to know. So there's an additional uh, classwork to do. There's an additional sign-off or endorsement to have in your uh, your, your P file, your personnel file. So you were uh, fortunate enough to come out to Maui, and that does count as an international destination. And you were out in Maui just last week, was it? Yeah, last week. And uh, yeah, the the the, uh, the segment between L.A. and uh, uh, Hawaii is actually the longest in, I believe, the world or our system. I think it is. Yeah, our system of over the water. So uh, there's no real good area to divert to. It's either you make it or you turn around you and turn you go back. Go, yep. So uh, yeah, absolutely. So. Uh, that uh, uh, training was phenomenal. Great check airman uh, from a le- another legacy airline, uh, pre-merger airline. So uh, meeting those two cultures and flying with two uh, different uh, backgrounds uh, for the first time really uh, was interesting. Um, he had his legacy carrier, and I was from a different legacy carrier. But um, when you walk onto the flight deck, that's all behind you. And right. you're just looking forward. You can't be looking in the rear view mirror your entire career. And, um, but, uh, yeah, so that was Maui. And then, uh, my first day, uh, on reserve, 
I get a phone, you know, not really a phone call. It was uh, just notification of a uh, trip, and it was with you. Yeah. And we've never met before, right? No. Nope, nope. And how does that work? How does that work that I can step on the flight deck, uh, text you, and say, hey, I'm down here? Yep. And uh, with a box of Dunkin' Donuts coffee and donuts for the crew. Mind you, your bribery was well appreciated because, uh, you know, and, and I did the walk around. And, and he did. <laughs> the captain did the walk around, ladies and gentlemen. It wasn't raining. This is, and, you know, he broke. No, actually, he didn't break the 40 40 rule. Have you heard of the 40 40 rule? Uh, so if the temperature's below 40 or the captain's older than 40, the FO shall do all the walk-arounds. Yeah, there <laughs> so you go. You're, so you're good. You're good. Uh, but no, I do appreciate that. I mean, talk about a friendly, professional, uh, just class act. You know, here I am. Uh, he already knew my schedule because he looked to see who he was flying with. He saw my name. He thought, oh, my God, who is this guy? And uh, he said, oh, he'd be your Tony. I know this guy. No, he didn't say that. I'm kidding. But uh, he he... Went and texted me. We have a, uh, an app that you can uh, send messages to the person you're flying with uh, so that you can say, hey, where are you? Or, you know, uh, it's a great, great way to communicate with, uh, with your fellow aviator. And, you know, we, we have our union to thank for that, that they've developed that uh, ability. Um, and, uh, and also some other programs that uh, are pay-to-play programs that most pilots at Legacy Airlines uh, have on their phone. So he, he texted me. Um, introduced himself and said, hey, I'm at the airplane. Uh, just want to let you know uh, I've done the walk around and I've got donuts and coffee. So uh, no need. Uh, if you want some coffee, I got it for you. And I just thought, wow, that's and, and I was about to go get coffee, too. I was about to go, you know, grab a, a large cup of coffee and because I had just come in from from Phoenix. So I had, uh, you know, an hour flight from Phoenix, not a big deal, but it was kind of early in the morning when we got up and got ready. And then about an hour, hour and 20 minutes sitting in LA, I had to walk to a different terminal. So, you know, by the time I kind of got cleaned up, um, especially now, very careful, we're always washing our hands between flights with soap and water. And as many of you may have uh, heard in the, uh, some of the previous episodes, when you wash your hands, ladies and gentlemen, sing happy birthday two times before you rinse. <laughs> and this is the best way to prevent catching most common colds or flu uh, viruses. So, so there I was, you know, getting ready to head out to the coffee shop. I got this text message. Jason texted me, introduced himself and said, come on down when you're ready. Oh, can you grab the uh, flight release off the printer up at the gate for me? And I said, ah, oh, absolutely. So there I was, get down there, get to the airplane and met the crew. Everybody was very happy there with a donut in their hand and heart-shaped donuts because it was Valentine's Day after all. And uh, we didn't we we almost didn't leave on time. Yeah, you have uh, things that kind of come up at the last second. And you have to deal with them and prioritize. And uh, fortunately, we were, I think, about three seconds early. Yeah, yeah. Or, so uh, three seconds from being uh, late, I guess. Yeah. Well, yes, because uh, uh, and we've I think we've mentioned this before, but when you're dealing with a 121 operator, the DOT has approved your times. And your window is departure minus 10 plus zero, meaning if you are one minute late on departure, you're late. And if you're continuously late, then you, unfortunately, your flight uh, gets put under a watch list and, and you don't want that. So you want to do your best to get the on time for the company as long as it's safe to do so and uh, everything's uh, correct and ready to go. So what we had was a PA system that was not 
operating. It was it was muted, and yeah. there's no way to adjust the volume. And it's an automated system in the Airbus 321, uh, the H model that we we currently are flying over to Hawaii. And so, you know, we uh, both Jason looked at it, uh, and then he says, "Okay, well, I'll call maintenance if you want to take a look at it. Maybe you see something that I'm not seeing." Which I thought you know, I appreciated that because that shows uh, you know open uh, forms of communication. It it helps promote TEM and CRM. And so I got up and I was like, oh, "Take a look at it, sure." And sure enough, I saw the same thing he did, and there was no way to to adjust the volume. So maintenance came out, did a control alt delete on that system, and in the nick of time, handed us the logbook and said, "Okay, it's good to go, Captain." And we took off with. Like you said, three seconds to spare. So we are, yeah, we pushed off the gate, and as after we got to a uh, out of sterile and a safe cruising altitude, and we were on our way, we started realizing, man, the winds are really cooperating here. We're gonna be there an hour early. So there it was, through no major effort, just because of circumstance, uh, we underblocked by pretty much an hour. It was like an hour and five. It yeah, was even yeah, an hour. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, you go back to talking about uh, uh, you have two people that never met each other and uh, the cohesiveness that we have, uh, whether it be personalities. I mean, we all have personality types and, you know, people are different, different backgrounds. You grew up in Cali, right? Yeah, well, Northern California, yeah. Yeah, I grew up in the sticks of West Virginia. Yep. And uh, two of us can uh, come together and fly this. You know, two hundred thousand plus airplane uh, pound airplane uh, uh, to Hawaii. Yeah. And and how does that all work? So, um, with all the background you know, that we have, that's so different. So, you know, it blows my mind sometimes. It really does. Uh, that uh, all the challenges that we have had in our uh, career, and the training, and the the check rides, and the testing, and the medicals, and the here we are, yeah. you and I. Well, the commonality, I think, at least you know, you know, you and I have have very similar uh, experience in terms of how many years we've been doing this, and I think you'd agree the commonality is the flight. Probably ninety percent of the time, doesn't matter what carrier you're with, it's going to go relatively well, and you're going to hit it off with the other person because you have to stop and think about what type of person becomes a pilot, you know, male or female, you know, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of, you know, sexual preference, you're with somebody who is a technical person who loves aviation, who has a passion for what they're doing, because I've said it before, if you don't love flying, you're in the wrong profession, because what you have to deal with and the sacrifice in order to maintain a professional career is, is a lot. And I think it's that commonality that that bond that you share and if you're both there doing operating on a daily basis using SOP which is the acronym that we use for standard operating procedures if you operate your flight every day with the knowledge you're supposed to have obtained and the knowledge of what is supposed to be said standardization read the checklist appropriately don't take shortcuts don't be lazy if it's if you're a pilot monitoring and you're supposed to be working the radios, work the radios. If you're a pilot flying and you're supposed to be operating in a certain way and you're not supposed to be reaching up and pushing buttons because you're flying and the autopilot's not on, so you're flying. Let the pilot monitoring do their duties. And if we're all on the same page and operating as such, that opens up a huge window 
to just talk and listen and learn and you start to realize how much you have in common with the next person and and i think that's why like you and i got together we just met we flew one leg out here and it's like i've known you for years yeah it's, it's so uh it's interesting and luckily we work for a company that is so diverse and uh you know people uh you'd embrace that it's it's amazing we I think in society today too, we always talk about what divides us and how we're different instead of how much we're alike, whether it be uh, whatever race or preference or background. Um, I think pilots are, like you said, so special because we're all the same, for the most part, types of personality. You always have your outliers everywhere, but for the most part, it's prominent that uh, we kind of beat to the same uh, drum and uh, it, it is amazing. And one of the things that makes us so cohesive is, like you said, the standard operating procedures and, and uh, the kind of tap dance that we both have to do. And if we're both doing it, we're in unison. And if you're in unison, then things are easy. Right. You get that guy or girl that is doing the total opposite or trying to do your job, make your actions and call outs. It just it doesn't work out very well. Oh. And uh, you were talking about you know, the education and so forth and, uh, the, uh, uh, the dedication to the craft earlier, we were talking about, um, you know, wanting to engage yourself. If you love this job, if you love this job, you'll dedicate the time and the effort to be the best. And if you don't have that aspiration, then this is not for you. Right. Uh, because like you said, I mean, the tests that you had to take, the investments that you have to make, not only time and money, but uh, your lifestyle, um, relationships. Um, you know, this industry is not for you, but you know, I'm not the smartest student. I'm not going to go pick up uh, Hamlet or you know, some uh, novel or book or read uh, you know, a play script or uh, whatever, you know, f- physics or so forth. But when it came to aviation, I found out that if there was something that I needed that I needed to do uh, or learn, I loved it so much it didn't matter how hard it was. Right. Uh, I dove into it. Yeah. You had a tenacity for what needed to be done for you to succeed. Exactly. And that's like the best advice. Um, I recently received an email uh, from Peter through through the Aviator Tony website, and he wrote that uh, he was working on his his uh, commercial single-engine land rating and was excited about the future. And he asked me if I had any advice about how to prepare or how to better stand out for that 121 job. Um, and, and it's exciting that I have you know, listeners writing in. And, and I wrote back and I gave some advice. And, and I understand that you also do some mentorship programs uh, I believe with Bowling Green uh, in that educational field of aviation. Do you want to talk a little bit about that today? Yeah, it'd be awesome. Um, you know, one of the things uh, coming from Bowling Green uh, State University, there weren't a lot of people to look up to um, as far as the career progression that we are at now. Um, a lot of people went corporate or private aviation and so forth. And so um, you look at uh, where you are now and Try to help pull people up and uh, that want to be where you are 
and uh, and help uh, assist them. So through Bowling Green, uh, my number, uh, my name is always out there. Um, I have uh, stepped up in a limited capacity uh, to their advisory board, but I also give back to, uh, or I have given back to us, uh, the programs that uh, allow me to get to where I am now, being Civil Air Patrol. And uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, that uh, ended up occupying too much of my time um, with having family and kids. That uh, My role is limited, but I still have a lot of those cadets that uh, I did uh, you know, volunteer with and uh, still communicate with today. Um, but there's also a lot of other volunteer opportunities, and uh, fortunately, that our company has provided. Uh, that allow uh, me to help uh, mentor not only the future, but also the people that are here um, through our union. You know, people have this uh, negative connotation sometimes of unions and whatnot. One of the best uh, things that we have going for our legacy airline is the uh, the pilots and uh, the pilot's ability to mentor. We have a very um, impressive mentorship program. Um, and uh, that program has allowed me to connect with a lot of the new hires that come through that uh, have uh, varying backgrounds uh, from military to, you know, wholly owned flow throughs. So your the program you are currently involved in is both you have a little bit uh, still your foot in the door there in Bowling Green. Uh, State University uh, with their aviation program and anybody that's in the area in Bowling Green area uh, in Ohio and they would like to go onto the website take a look at their uh, aviation department program uh, I'll try to put a link in the show notes so they can kind of look into it that way uh, you talked a little bit about your uh, pilot mentorship that you're doing through our Legacy Airlines' uh, union program I too was a, a pilot mentor for many years uh, back at the, the what we call Sandpiper Regional uh, here at uh, Squawk Ident, uh, my regional carrier. And uh, again, it was through our pilot union, and they would basically give my information to two or three of the new hires from their new hire class. If they had any questions uh, between uh, the time where you're doing your ground school training to the time you're in the sim to the time you're in IOE, and even after that, uh, they at least have a contact of someone that they can reach out to if they can't get the answer immediately they can reach out to me and then i would then try to help them out and it's a great program and if you are given a number if you get a job at a uh, an airline of any kind and you're given a contact for the mentor program make sure you save it into your phone and reach out to them text them do whatever you have to do email and let them know that you're out there and because sometimes you need an answer and you need it now and you can't, you know, you might call or text a few people and you don't get a response. And the more people you have batting for you, uh, the more chance for you to get those answers and for your own success. Also, you mentioned a little bit about our Legacy Carriers uh, Cadet Program. And for those of you listening who I'm sure there's most of you are very interested in this, um, it, there are programs out there. So take a look at the big uh, the big few half dozen or so uh, airlines out there and take a look at what is commonly referred to as their cadet program. We all, we all pretty much have them at this point and uh, look at what the program requirements are. Make some phone calls. Even if you are still working on your single engine instrument rating and you're, you know, you're still far away from uh, getting ready to move forward with your career, 
get the facts, even though they're going to change, even though they'll develop, at least you'll have an idea of what's required with the cadet program. And I know that there are many airlines out there, especially regional airlines, like uh, there are, I know, uh, Express Jet and uh, Republic, Compass, uh, and uh, I know uh, Envoy, Piedmont PSA, they all have uh, regional airline cadet programs where they even, in some cases, help you pay for your educational expenses. Uh, they get you uh, in the door if you were approved for the program to where, as a flight instructor, they will check back with you on a regular basis. They'll give you updates. And then as soon as you have your time, you're in the door. Your Basically, exactly. It's pipeline programs, uh, trying to reach back out. And, uh, uh, you know, if you're interested in that airline, you know, they stay in contact with you and they uh, see your progression and, once you're ready, uh, you basically have an interview. You're fit in the door. And uh, I do uh, I mentor a lot of uh, even those um, uh, pilots that are looking at uh, the various airlines. I will tell you, you know, if you're listening then, and if the one thing I can uh, express more than anything else is do your research. They, uh, the, the regional airlines all want you. Um, do your research in the contracts into the culture and uh, the route structure. And, you know, if you're looking at one of, uh, you know, the legacy airlines, wholly owns uh, right now, how long is it going to take you to flow? Um, uh, we are very fortunate to work for an airline that has a flow program, uh, a real true flow program. Um, but how long is the pilot right now that just gets hired? He or she, how long is it going to take he or she to flow? And uh, be careful. They'll all lie to you uh, or stretch the truth. I don't want to say lie, but uh, stretch the truth. Because things are so, it change all the time, and you got to pay attention. Yeah. And, uh, and do your, otherwise, you'll end up at a place you don't want to work. Yeah. And, you know, the numbers that they give you are projections today. Six months from now, those projections can change because they're just that. They're projections. So they might give you the, the rosy, you know, all hearts and stars, smiley face uh, numbers that you look at and go, oh, wow, look at that. But then, you know, six months or a year down the road, you're like, well, you said I was going to upgrade in two years, and now it looks like it's going to be four. You guys lie. It's like, well, it, those were the numbers then. And, of course, things evolve, and these are the numbers now. But stay positive, stay consistent, and, you know, don't settle. I think you mentioned earlier to me, either yesterday or, or this morning, don't settle for that airline because they hired you. Uh, maybe in the beginning, you can't be so picky, but as you progress, if your end game is to be at ABC Airline, well, you should be focusing every effort to in the end, get to ABC Airline and don't settle for XYZ instead and go, well, this is what the card's dealt and this is where I am. Yeah. As I said before, uh, without risk, there's a reward. And you find people, uh, phenomenal, amazing pilots, very uh, gifted pilots in the regional airlines that also become too comfortable. And, um, you know, everyone has a decision to make, and I don't judge those for making that decision of wanting to stay. But you're really capping your potential. Uh, yeah, your quality of life might be amazing. You might have, you know, six months of vacation a year, but you're really capping your uh, ability uh, income-wise too. And uh, the the time is now. Uh, if uh, you're going to get on with a 
uh, legacy carrier, um, the uh, top echelon of the seniority list at our uh, airline is just they're uh, retiring at a crazy amount. And this year, uh, the projections are hiring 1,200 to 1,500 pilots. Well, when that's one fifteenth of your pilot group in one year, what's in five years? Um, so if you're wanting to make that jump, don't hold back. Don't be afraid. Don't be complacent because, uh, unfortunately, the world of the regional airlines, you, you might not be having a base. Uh, you know, bases open and close. Fleets right. get shut down. Airlines get shut down. I mean, how many airlines have we seen in the last uh, couple of years? I mean, Comair. Uh, you know, there, there's quite a few that have... That have Masaba. either you know changed names, merged, yeah. uh, you know just shut doors, uh, changed for whatever reason. Um, and bases, I mean, I know over at Sandpiper, at one point we had six or seven bases when I got hired, and then we got down to two, and then we started slowly building them back up again. Um, but yeah, just be flexible, like is, is what I'm hearing you say, and and be consistent and always looking forward. Don't don't stay stagnant. Because you're going to end up bitter, and you're going to be the 10% we were talking about that those guys and gals are just not very much fun to fly with because they're a little bitter. Uh, and, and it's a shame because this job, like you said, it's easy. It can be a lot of fun. If you have a great personality, you get to meet some great people. Um, and just before we kind of wrap this up here, uh, I just want to let everyone know that at the Fictitious Legacy Airlines, that uh, we fly for, uh, they have a cadet program. And I'm going to read a little bit about the eligibility to be in the cadet program here at Legacy Airlines. And, and the other airlines out there might have very, very similar requirements. So it says here, you must be legally eligible to work in the United States. Check. Be 21 years old by the completion of approximately three-year program. So whatever flight program you're in by the third year you need to be 21 years old check have a high school diploma or ged check uh, be able to obtain an fa first class physical uh, we've said it before if you're going to become a student pilot get your student pilot third class medical student pilot certificate once you get that ppl in your hand if you decide that this is the career for you and you want to continue your education before you enroll and put a lot of hard-earned money or loans or what have you on an education, make sure you can pass a first-class medical before anything else. That's so huge. I'm mentoring a lady right now that uh, had uh, diagnosed ADD and was put on medication. You know, Luckily, uh, now we live in an era where the FA is more lenient. Uh, more accepting, and uh, we uh, we're always faced with those. What if this happens? What if I have a heart attack? What if I get diagnosed with diabetes? What if I have to go on this medication? And uh, you need to prepare yourself um, that uh, before you start, that you meet the criteria, like you said, of that first class medical. Uh, there are waivers available. There are uh, varying. Uh, I guess you would say special issuance. Special issuance. That's yeah. the word I was yeah. trying to find. Limitations. Uh, and sometimes your uh, FAA 
uh, medical examiner that you've been attending or been going to for your medical certificates uh, every six months to every year, however long you're doing it, may tell you, no, that's not that you can't if you do that. Don't stop there. Ask around. Go to the FAA flight surgeon. Regional flight surgeon's surgeon. office. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and you can get that information from your local FISDO, Flight Standards District Office. Or FAA.gov. FAA. Yeah, I, I'll say this too. Do your research, like you said, I'll piggyback off of you. Not all AMEs are the same. Uh, you go to some AMEs and they go through this very f- thorough physical. Um, and uh, yeah, <laughs> one guy used to say, uh, you just hope they don't have the the finger of ET, um, but <laughs> that's a little bit uh, yeah, excessive because no, that doesn't about. that doesn't happen. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you know, uh, you got to be very judicial. What you do, uh, just be careful. Yeah. Don't choose the wrong AME. Um, find one that's supportive of pilots. That's pro pilot. Um, like my doctor uh, in North Carolina, love her to death. Um, you know, a valuable resource where some. Uh, especially newer AMEs uh, might not be so flexible or understanding. Uh, I did have a friend of mine that uh, uh, just turned 35, works for another uh, airline, and uh, uh, recently moved and uh, had to go to a different AME and ended up uh, his nerves and uh, got to the best of them. And uh, the new AME misread his cardio um, EKG. EKG, sure. Grounded him for two months. Just got hired on with the major airline. Dream job. And next thing you know, just completed his type rating. And then gets grounded for two months. So pick, do your research, get a good AME that has a good reputation. That's knowledgeable and it's not his first week on the job. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you're, you're paying for service. Make sure that you're getting what you're paying for. Absolutely. And the last few things here uh, for the eligibility requirements for a cadet program at a uh, at a either regional or legacy carrier in the U.S. Uh, most of them want you to have a valid passport, obviously, uh, in order to fly, both domestically and internationally. You have to have one, and demonstrate proficiency in reading, writing, and speaking English. I think that's a given. That's also an FA requirement on every single certificate you get, including your private. And finally, you have to be able to pass background check. Now. If you have had a situation in the past where uh, you've uh, had an issue that you have to disclose to the FAA, uh, it's not a deal breaker, and at least not anymore. And as long as you're honest and they don't, you know, you, you, you document everything that you're required to document, find out what you're required to document. If you had an issue in the past, either with the law or, or with your medical uh, or with an incident while flying, just be upfront. And, you know, say, yeah, I had an issue. Uh, they'll usually ask you about it. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a disqualifier. And uh, if, if it's something that is not a big deal, it's not a big deal. I know many pilots that have had issues, including, you know, they got a DUI in college. And, you know, they, they have to disclose that every time you go to get your medical or every time you apply for a job. And they think, shit, I'm not going to be able to get a job anywhere because this thing's going to ruin my life. Not necessarily true. 
Yeah, I yeah I know uh, uh, many pilots that have had uh, DUIs, and it used to be one of those things. It's obviously a terrible thing. Uh, if you want a career killer or uh, something that might help uh, hurt you, uh, I don't think Tony's saying advocating. Uh, don't worry about a DUI. It's still a really bad thing. Uh, anything that you do in this career, you really got to be mindful of the consequences. Uh, one night of doing something stupid. Uh, will cost you, uh, could not only cost you your life or somebody else's life, uh, but also your uh, your career. Um, you know, as far as uh, the DUIs and uh, what to disclose, um, having that relationship with an AME uh, and calling and asking to talk to them before you put something down on the medical mm-hmm. is also kind of advise, uh, advisable. So if you have a question, you're not sure, Hey, uh, you know, I had a, a neuropathy in my hands. Should I put that on? Uh, you can always ask the AME and that way, before you check mark that box for the rest of your career, um, y- you have it set in stone, uh, in, and have that guidance from the AME. Absolutely. And, uh, even if you've never had a medical performed, Reach out uh, and you know ask questions. Hey, I'm thinking about becoming an airline pilot or a private pilot or a student pilot or what have you. And I'm worried that this might be a disqualifier or I'm on this medication and I'm worried that it might be a disqualifier. Get it from the horse's mouth. Exactly. You know, go right to the source. A lot of these AMEs are um, family doctors. You can go in and have a pre-physical done and ask them, hey, uh, this is what I'm concerned about. Um, and they can uh, help guide you as far as what's acceptable or not. Or even, like you said, calling the uh, the local uh, or the regional uh, medical examiner. The, uh, you know, the flight surgeon, the yeah. The flight surgeon, yeah. Um, they are very helpful with those things. Well, uh, Jason, is there anything else that uh, you'd like to uh, touch on today before we say goodbye to the folks? All right, well, you know, absolutely, Tony. I think that, uh, you know, we talked about the... Uh, uh, progression and career and so forth and we you know concentrate on uh the students that are coming through uh the university programs or you know flight training but uh right now uh the the big uh thing is the, the military pilots and uh not only uh just the jet fighter pilots um I mentor a V22 pilot and uh helicopter pilots um you know we are at the legacy airlines and most all airlines, if you have a military background, you are so desired and, uh, your foot is already in the door and past it. And you just have to apply. Um, but you know, you have regulations, uh, the V 22 guys with the tilt rotor and so forth. Uh, the FAA is, uh, coming out with rulemaking to, uh, help alleviate the issues of hours and so forth. And if you're coming, uh, out of the military or looking at, uh, what my next step is out of the military, uh, reach out to somebody, ask, uh, there are a lot of prior squadron or ex squadron mates, uh, uh, fellow pilots that, uh, are either, uh, in the airlines have just applied, just got hired and so forth. And, and, and really, uh, you know, use those resources to your benefit and keep posted. Um, a lot of the regional airline programs now have rotary transition programs, RTB, um, in fact, I think uh, even a couple of our Holy Owns uh, Legacy. Yeah. I know uh, Sandpiper does. Uh, part of my IOE experience as a Czech Airman, uh, probably 30 to 40% of my new hires that I had the privilege to give IOE to were rotor transition 
folks. And yeah, great, great pilots. They just had to go through the program. They had to go build their hours. The company helped them uh, achieve what they needed. They got them simulator times. They financially helped offset that cost. And they, in the past, you know, rotor transition, rotor time didn't really count. And now they have a formula that they, they can use to translate that to uh, fixed wing time to help get rotor transition individuals that are coming from a military background into a civil uh, airline environment. And I got to tell you, you know, in terms of some of the people that used to fast paced learning of systems and limitations and, you know, get the airplane training down, these guys were great. Yeah. Absolutely great. I mean, Mm -hmm. they, I, I saw them struggle with the pace of like turns you know, four legs in a day and, you know, 45 minute turns. And it's like, what, what do you mean? Or, you gotta... flare, or flaring. Or... <laughs> yes, of course. You know, there's a sight picture that you're flaring a little bit 200, 200 feet off the ground. No, not yet. <laughs> Put, push forward. Okay. Not yet. Uh, say, oh shit, three times. At uh, the third time, then I'll let you know if, okay. Oh, oh shit. Oh, oh shit. Oh shit. Okay. You can start flaring. Oh, 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 wow. That's a lot lower than I thought. Well, yeah. Okay. Does that look okay? Yeah. Okay. How's it landing? Oh, it's good. And so it really, you know, it, but that's the thing. It took them two, three legs in the actual airplane, and not in the sim, uh, but two or three legs in the actual airplane. You give them a little bit of instruction. You connect with them somehow, make it not stressful. And within the fourth landing, they had it down, at least you know, within the ballpark of the sight picture. And that's what I mean about they really, because they're used to drinking from the fire hose. Yeah. And uh, it's just that military background. Um, you know, regardless if you're a rotary guy or the guy uh, in F-15 or F-18, uh, the fire hose is big. Uh, you know, we talk about the struggles of um, the, the regional guys getting hired uh, onto the regional airlines and then the, the fire hose going from the regional airlines to the, the mainline carrier or even a different company. Um because you could be going from a wholly owned at Legacy to the Legacy airline itself, and there's still a big fire hose of change. Yeah. Imagine these guys coming out of the military, uh, and they're super sharp, super dedicated, super disciplined, and just the amount of information they have to uh, chew on is is amazing. It's phenomenal. That's where the mentorship programs come into place to kind of help you ease those anxieties and so forth. But yeah, I wanted to point out those RTP programs, um, the helicopter guys in the army that don't have the opportunity to uh, change over to, uh, you know, the beach uh, King air or so forth mm-hmm. uh, to get that fixed wing turbine time. Uh, luckily there's uh, such a need for pilots that if you have the ability, you have uh, the, uh, uh, background uh it's all available to you now it is well uh i just want to say thank you so much for spending the time to sit down with me here atop the 27th floor of the prince waikiki hotel in honolulu hawaii uh it is tough life it, it is a tough life um some exciting events uh that uh this morning uh, Jason texted me and said, hey, man, uh, uh, you want to hang out and go over to go see the the USS Arizona at Pearl Harbor at the memorial? And I said, you know, I've never actually had that opportunity. I'd love to. So we got together today and uh, headed on out to uh, the memorial. It was a 
very somber, uh, very emotional place, and uh, it, it really touched me. Uh, being on that vessel after watching that film and getting on a Navy vessel going over to the USS Arizona and seeing the final resting place for so many that have sacrificed everything for our freedoms, for our ability to say, I want to be a pilot someday. We are here in this freedom, in this opportunity, because of them, because of the sacrifices they've made, not just here in Hawaii during World War II, but you know, since the dawn of this country. And it was, it was all felt there. I mean, what did, what did you feel? Um, it's uh, an it's interesting, interesting perspective. Um, you're uh, watching a movie midway on my commute to L.A., and then the next day you're sitting on top of the U.S. Uh, as Arizona, and uh, just putting yourself into perspective, it grounds you. It uh, it's definitely humbling. Um, you look at the people around you that are there, and just like it's all encompassing. It's amazing, um, and uh, that happens a lot in our travels in this uh, industry. Uh, you get to go see things and do things um, that nobody else gets to do. They pay us to do this, to yeah. stay in this $470 a night per, you know, night hotel looking over Waikiki Beach yeah. in an infinity pool. Yeah, there's, there's definitely pluses there. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, yes, you are away from family. You're, you know, you've sacrificed a lot to, to get here, both you know, financially, physically, emotionally. And yeah, these are the perks. You know? Absolutely. And we got to hang out together. I am very appreciative of that. Uh, we got to go see a memorial that was, uh, for me, one of the highlights of not just this trip or this month, but really it was the highlight of the year for me so far. I know it's kind of early in the year, but... Um, it reminded me, uh, so you've been in, you know, in the air pretty much for 20 years. What's the most exciting thing that you've ever witnessed? Wow, there's a lot of them. Uh, that's a great question. I think the most memorable thing uh, is probably going into Rio for the first time. Uh, the topography. Uh, Seeing just absolute the absolute beauty this world has, whether it be uh, well uh, Rio, uh, I love culture, I love food, I love uh, uh, sights and history, and uh, but uh, that would probably be at the top of my list. Yeah, and that was a good long overnight. Did you get to see anything while you were there? Did you see a show or just visit local? attractions or you got to be careful some of the most beautiful places on this earth are some of the most dangerous dangerous and corrupt and so yeah you got to be careful and uh my wife worries about that a lot sometimes and uh as you do more and more international uh you find that uh you know uh some of the places that you like to go uh you just got to be mindful uh you gotta be careful and so sometimes flying domestic uh is nice because uh you uh don't have as much to worry about. You still have things to worry about. And, you know, we have our late uh, co-worker that was uh, a, a prime example of that uh, down in Puerto Rico. You got to be mindful and uh, be careful. Yeah. Yeah. As we, uh, we mentioned actually in uh, two shows ago, yeah, two shows ago, we mentioned the, the tragic events of 
of what happened to a, a fellow aviator out there. Um, wrong place, wrong time on a, a an overnight in, in an international destination and went out to have a cigarette out front of a, a club and and unfortunately lost his life. Uh, and that's still very much fresh on our minds. And and but you have to be careful, be diligent. And I actually talked a little bit about on that show on some of the steps you can take as a pilot or a crew member or a flight attendant alike. Uh, you know, have the hotel's phone number in your phone, not that you can Google it later. Because what if you don't have a signal? Have it in your phone. Uh, check with the front desk before you leave. Have a buddy system. Go with a crew member. I think that's the biggest one. Being together. Uh... Uh, your crew members are your family when you're working, and uh, you know that particular incident. Uh, I didn't, uh, I didn't know the pilot, but I will say uh, that not one person said anything but great things about him. You know, a father, a grandfather, a very uh, amazing pilot, and uh, it can happen to anybody. Uh, but you uh, reduce your risk, and reduce your risk when. Uh, you follow certain protocols. Mm-hmm. And, and some of the other things that um, I, I learned early on was have, if you're in another country, have the U.S. consulate's phone number in your phone. It doesn't take but a minute to Google, you know, U.S. consulate in whatever country you're in or city you're in um, and have that number readily available to you. Um, also, police departments sometimes, if there's. Yeah, it depends on the country. Depends on the country and the language barrier for sure. Um, I think for me, um, the best experience I had, which is by far probably something I'll remember for the rest of my life as the highlight of my aviation career. And it happened early on. It actually happened about, well, it happened years ago. It was the final space shuttle launch. Um, I was flying with a captain uh, for Sandpiper Air, uh, Regional Airlines, and uh, I was flying over uh, Ormond Beach, flying southbound towards Miami. And ATC said, hey, you know, uh, if you look off the left-hand side here in a few minutes, I'm going to be giving you a radar vector because they're going to be launching the shuttle. And we were like, what? So we had barely enough time to reach in our, our old-school leather kit bags you know, that we had, and I had a little point-and-shoot digital camera, one of the first, uh, Canon Elf, I think it was, one of the first digital cameras. And I was able to capture quite a few photos um, from 37,000 feet flying southbound close to Ormond Beach, Florida. Um, and I got to see, I believe it was the Atlantis, special Atlantis takeoff. And it was an amazing thing. And here I am in the right seat taking pictures and be like, oh, this is so cool, you know? And I look over and my captain, who was probably in her late 50s at the time had a tear in her eye and you know and I knew a little bit about her background she had a very interesting background a very interesting character she's seen some things and she's like oh my god this is the highlight of my she was enamored with the space program as a child and I mean this was just like the total nexus of of the whole thing. Did you know that that was going to be the last space shuttle? Because uh... we kind of were like, we knew that it was going on. We we knew in the news that they were going to launch today. We had no idea that we were going to be so close and in that window. But that did you know that that was the yes. last? Okay. We knew it was the very last NASA uh, shuttle to be launched. And funny thing is, the very next week. Uh, different captain, same route, and it was at night this time, 
and we're there, and it was a low cloud cover over the Kennedy Space Center, 37,000 feet, just shy of Ormond Beach. I'm telling this captain that I'm flying with uh, a week later, the highlight of my career. Oh my God, I got to see, you know, from this vantage point, most people see it from the TV or from the ground, or, and I, I'm, I'm seeing it from the air, and I can see how it's accelerating and getting into the upper levels of the atmosphere, and I could see these, the contrails, how they're dissipating depending on the levers of the atmosphere, and, and it, just, it just was an amazing thing to witness. And as I'm telling him, I look over, and I, we both see this flash of white light coming from under the cloud deck. And we think, oh my goodness, is this, a, is this an explosion? Is this a, like a factory explosion? It's a big, bright white light. I mean, it's not a fire. Fire would be like orange-red. And so the captain goes, hey, uh, ATC, is, are they launching something? And like, well, they think they're supposed to be launching a rocket later. Uh, do you see anything? And like, yeah, we see it. And like, they didn't vector us or anything. We stayed on course. And sure enough, I pulled out my camera again. And, and if I, I can find the photos, I'll put them in the show notes. And here's this little image with a huge, you know, uh, exhaust and, and flame coming out from the rocket fuel being spent. And here is this thing making this perfect arc into outer orbit. And as it disappeared into the black sky, amazing. Two weeks in a row, two launches. And, you know, the highlight was the shuttle because, you know, there's people involved. There's people on board. It's, it's the last one. And a week later, a Delta rocket. Amazing. It was like the SpaceX rocket. That's... You know, that, I, I actually got to see the effects of the one that they did over Vandenberg last year, a year before. Yeah. Where the, the contrails all were evaporating in the sky, leaving this like rainbow color and weird shape because of the winds aloft and everything. And it's, it's amazing. The it's amazing that it goes in. up. And it's amazing even more when you're there. And it's coming back through the atmosphere, the sonic boom, and to see it, uh, the technology that we have, uh, the land itself upright. Yeah. Uh, it's just absolutely amazing. A lot of good things is coming. Yeah, you know, uh, favorite times to fly, uh, you were talking about at night. It, it, that's probably the most surreal uh, experience when you're just sitting up there, you know, 30, 40,000 feet in the stars. And you just sit there like, God, I can't believe they pay us to do this yeah and uh, how much clearer things are up there just absolutely amazing yep yep so from these uh these two grateful aviators over here in uh in waikiki uh this is aviator tony signing off one more time and for all of these of you that are listening to squawk ident for the first time or maybe uh you're just starting to to listen to squawk ident i thank you for listening to us and uh, Jason, is there anything you want to say to the folks before we go? Uh, done. You're done. Yes. Well, ready, to get, ready to go to bed for that uh, show. Yep. Nap time and uh, late night red eye later this evening uh, back to Los Angeles. Well, from, uh, from the 27th floor in Waikiki, this is Aviator Tony saying good luck and we'll talk to you soon. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed the interview. Uh, the only thing that uh, we didn't really touch on was the delay that we ended up uh, taking coming out of Honolulu when flying that red eye back. So just briefly, I'll tell you what happened there, as I mentioned in the uh, onset of the show. So we got to the gate uh, about two hours behind schedule because the inbound aircraft was delayed coming out of Los Angeles. So that pushed back our departure time. So we were dealing already with a, a tardy aircraft. 
once we got uh, on the aircraft, everything was boarded and ready to go. We had a mechanical issue with uh, something in the back of the aircraft that had to be taken care of. And that uh, did push us back even a little bit further, but we were all set to go. We pushed off the gate, and as we started to uh, get the engines running and everything, wouldn't you know it, both A and B transponders uh, had a fault light. Uh, so both transponders were, were faulty. Well, we went back to the gate, the maintenance came on board and worked their magic. And of course, uh, Jason was giving the regular Captain PAs every 10 to 15 minutes explaining what was going on. But a couple passengers uh, wanted to get off the airplane. They felt that the air aircraft uh, you know, may or may not have been safe, and they were really worried and concerned flyers. So, of course, we, we allowed them the opportunity to deplane, and unfortunately, we uh, we did leave with a few less passengers. And, you know, at Legacy Airlines, if a passenger wants to get off the plane, then that's their prerogative. Uh, and we did take off about three hours behind schedule, and unfortunately, we're not able to make up much time in the air. So, got into Los Angeles just about around 9 a.m. the next morning. So that was it. That's the show. I uh, hope you all enjoy what you're hearing here on Squawk Ident every week. Uh, we do uh, try to bring some good content out there that we think people would listen to and like. Uh, the journey of the typical aviator is really what I'm shooting for. And I, I also want to say a special thank you to Captain Jason Dorsey for sitting down with me uh, in Honolulu there on the layover and really giving us a good insight on you know, what his journey has involved uh, over the years. A very impressive uh, person. And I really want us to say thanks again. Are you enjoying Squawk Ident? Please visit our website at www.aviatortony.com. That's Alpha, Victor, the number eight, Romeo, Tango, Oscar, November, Yankee.com. There you can check out episode cover art, episode archives, the pilot shop, and you can even leave uh, feedback. You can contribute to the show and help us with equipment and software and marketing expenses by becoming a producer of Squawk Ident, either with a one-time or a monthly contribution. And now you can even leave us audio feedback under the Contact Us tab as well. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter users can search Squawk Ident Podcast or Aviator Tony and Squawk Ident to follow on the social meets. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, if you would be so kind as to take a moment and leave us a review, we would really appreciate it. So, in closing, I'd like to just say thank you for taking the time to listen to this grateful aviator. Keep the dirty side down, be safe, and take care of each other. <laughs>